meditation, 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 meditation. depending on thank the you. quality thank of you. my mind. You know, there's thank good days and bad days. I mean, feel like the waterfall of thoughts. And every now and then, a nice calm. I can't think of anything. This is meditation in the city. The Shambhala New York podcast. Thank you for listening to the Meditation in the City podcast. My name is Francesca, and I'm your host. The title of this episode is Ego. In this episode, we discuss the Buddhist understanding of ego, what it is, how it develops, and why this ego is fundamentally workable. Today, we're joined by Natalie Baker. Natalie, founder of Buddhist Psychotherapy New York and Neurofeedback New York, is a licensed psychotherapist and certified neurofeedback trainer. She's been a student and teacher of Tibetan Buddhism and Shambhala Buddhism since the 90s. Here's Natalie to take away the discussion. So tonight's topic um, is actually all about how workable we are. Now, we all have associations with the word ego. And I would love to hear from you, what is your first thought association with that word? And you can just blurt it out. What do you think of when, especially living in New York City, what do you think of when you hear the word ego? What was that? Freud. Freud. What else? Arrogant, self-absorbed, the self, B-A-B-Y, baby, (laughs) I got it, (laughs) great, fear, impulse, pride, great, Identity, intelligence, defense, Mm -hmm. solid, narcissism, yeah, such a big ego. But the exception of one or two of those descriptors, they were all pretty much negative, right? So, are we screwed? You know, it's important when we're studying a new topic, whatever the topic is, is to first be aware of what our preconceptions are. So what our, our ideas are coming in, so that we can be aware that we're gonna filter things. It's guaranteed that we're going to filter what we hear through our own preconceived ideas. So uh, the Buddhist definition of ego is very different than our preconceptions. Trung Prabhupada, who started the Shambhala Centers, um, his one of the unique gifts that he gave 
to his students was he really immersed himself in the culture so that he could speak to the language and the culture and the preconceptions uh, of the West, particularly of America. And one of the things that he said over and over again is that uh, ego is a mistake. He also called it a lie. But I prefer mistake because it's very judgment neutral. Whoops. That's kind of what we're doing all the time. Whoops. We're making a mistake. And not even a big one. Okay, so now we have two things going on, right? We have this feeling that ego is kind of a big, messy monster that sits on our shoulder. And then we have this idea that's being presented that ego is a, a small mistake that we make over and over again. Hmm. But interestingly, I don't think anybody would be here if on some level you didn't also experience ego as, this gentleman said in the back, intelligent. Even though we have this preconceived idea that uh, we have this big problem, ego, we still decide to meditate. sit on a cushion, label thoughts thinking, and come back to the breath. Why would that be a smart thing to do? So we're going to hopefully, by the end of our conversation tonight, that it's going to be clear why meditating is a really smart thing to do and how it is that uh, ego is actually not that big of a deal. In fact, it's quite workable. So now we have to go to the, the Buddhist creation story the beginning of time and space, which actually happens in every moment. So this is something that is particular about Buddhism, uh, the Shambhala tradition, Tibetan Buddhism, Zen Buddhism, Theravadan Buddhism, is that 
we are more interested in the creation myth as an event that's taking place all the time as opposed to an event that happened way back when in history when another mistake was made. So I thought it would be more interesting to have a little experience as opposed to just a didactic presentation of this. So if you're game, I'm going to lead you through a, a short exercise, really short, um, that hopefully will start to lead you into the experience. Trung Rinpoche and uh, Sakyang Mipam Rinpoche, who is the current head of Shambhala, they both very much emphasize the ex experience, experiential understanding. And while we can talk very uh, conceptually about this topic, I think because we're new practitioners, I'm assuming most people are, one of the biggest things we're trying to figure out is, is it really worth it to meditate? Like, what am I really going to get out of this? Is it for me? Is it not? So I'm going to orient this more towards helping clarify why it's a good idea to practice. So, how many, how many of you are completely new to Buddhism, never heard anything before? Wow. Okay, this is a new era. It's like no hands went up. That's great. So, you all probably know then that the seed of everybody's nature, basic being, is uh, fundamentally sane or fundamentally good basic goodness. And that like the sun in the sky, it's always there. Clouds may cover it, right? the confusion of ego covers it, but nevertheless the sun is always shining even on a gray day. That's our fundamental nature. So at the beginning of the creation story is the experience of basic goodness, the arising of intelligent space. So what I'd like for you all to do now is to, this is my symbol for close your eyes. <laughs> And I'm going to lead you through a, a very short exercise. And however you want to visualize in your imagination the environment of basic goodness, what it looks like, I want you to do that. But I want to encourage you to make it extra bright. So if it's the, the Rocky Mountains in the summer, I want you to turn up the vividness 
of that picture. And I want you to keep turning up the vividness of whatever your picture is of uh, basic goodness until it gets so bright that you imagine shutting your eyes. So then I want you to imagine that now it's dark. You shut your eyes, it was too bright. And you fell asleep. And then, now you can open your eyes and it's like, now this is what you see. There's an object in front of you. And at first, that first moment you open your eyes, there's just that sense of an object or objects in front of you. Then you get a sense as to whether or not you like it or don't like it. And you might be looking at me, you might be looking at the shrine, you might be looking at the back of somebody's head right now. And then there's some sense of what kind of relationship you want to have with that object. There's some inkling of an action. And right after that, you uh, give it a name. Oh, black curly hair. Woman speaking. Orange shrine. And then, I'm not really sure I'm into this talk tonight. You know, I kind of think maybe I should have gone out for dinner with friends. Maybe that would have been a better thing to do. Or what exactly are those bowls on the shrine about? I really never understood that. Then there's a, a full narrative. That's the process in a, a very crude presentation. But that's the process of the birth of ego. And that process is taking place every millisecond. So let's go through it again, which is that in the beginning, there's actually a vivid sense of the qualities of experience. And I once asked Pan Labrovice, uh, who is a Buddhist teacher, why, uh, why don't we all just rest in our basic goodness? If that's the, the foundation of our experience, sounds pretty good, why don't we just all hang out there? And he said to me, because it's too intense. We actually don't know what to do with the vividness and the clarity. And so we shut down. So space, the original space of experience, 
becomes ignorance. We actually ignore. And in that process, we forget. We actually forget that there's a first experience of basic goodness. And then what happens is what's called the arising of the five skandhas, or the five heaps, five heaps. And the arising of the five heaps is what you and I call me. So let's go through it again. The first moment is a sense of some other, some form, right? I see you in front of me. There's a form that's arising. And there is, right after that, there's a feeling that we have about the form. And it's very crude at this moment. It's kind of like, mm, like, don't like, neutral, that level. And then we're kind of starting to strategize what do we want to do with that information, that initial feeling? And then right after that, we give it a label. That's when concept arises as a, as a thought. Man, Tonka, fan. And then we get the fifth skanda, which is what most of us are experiencing most of the time, which is our narrative. That lovely AM radio that's playing. Constantly judging, analyzing, critiquing, planning, sorting, right? Endless. And we make a mistake. We take those five heaps of experience, registering form, having a feeling, having a sense of an, a, a way we want to be in relationship with that object, giving it a label, and then having our narrative. We take each of those and we assume oh, that must mean I exist, and I'm solid, and I need to defend myself, I need to strategize, and the story that we develop of who we are, and what makes us who we are, and what we want to do. We take these five heaps, and we conclude, I must be a solid thing. There's a me because I experienced this process. That's the mistake. Whoops. So to use uh, another example that we can, I think, all agree on is that if you take um, the chair, right, that's the, the fourth skanda label is chair, right? First we recognize there's a form, 
then we're like, eh, I, don't, I don't really like metal chairs. Right? There's a feeling towards the chair, and I don't want to look at it, so I'm moving away. I don't like it. And I recognize it's a chair. And I have lots of memories about sitting uncomfortably in metal chairs. Now, that chair, we would never say that that chair has a, has a chairness to it, right? So we wouldn't look at that chair and go, hmm, there's an essence to that chair, right? You couldn't, like, rip the legs off of it, take the back off, rip the seat off, and go, See, here's, here is the essence of the chair. I found it. There, there it is, peeled back the paint. Right there, there's the essence of the chair. Right? We, we wouldn't do that. We'd be like, what are you doing? Why are you taking apart the chair? You're not going to find anything. There's no, like, essence of chair. But that's the assumption that we make about our experience. There's a meanness to me. And that meanness needs to be protected and loved. And that AM radio that plays in the head, that confirms there's a meanness. There's a me to me. Actually not. Whoops, that's the mistake. Right? We, I mean, we can do, and this is a, an exercise you do, in uh, various stages along the Buddhist path is you deconstruct the self. Okay, if you have an essence, where is it? Is it in your arm? Most people say no. Okay. Your right toe? No. Okay, let's take those pieces off. You're still you, right? But then if we chop off both legs, most people are like, yeah, still me. You see where we're going with this, right? right? If you take off the skin, what about if you lop off your head? Are you, okay, we got a torso over here, got a head over there. Which is you? Maybe rip out the heart. Buddhists love to get pretty graphic. With like death, we love to talk about death, deconstructing the body. So part of what we do when we study Buddhism is we look at our assumptions, right? Because something is making us really unhappy in life. Or something feels not so great. And then maybe the thought arises, hmm, maybe I should meditate. Maybe that would help. But we don't really kind of know why we're unhappy, why we have this feeling of dissatisfaction. We're kind of wondering if the constant self-attack in our heads is correct. Maybe there is something kind of screwed about us. So now we are presented with the Buddhist teachings on 
how it is in every moment that we recreate confusion. The birth of ego, the arising of some sense of I, as somebody said, that that's actually a mistake. So now that we're feeling just a little bit more comfortable with our workability, maybe just like a little bit, So now we have to talk a little bit about the practice of meditation. How do these two things fit together? Why meditate? Why meditate? And you know, it's interesting watching the arising of, of the, in the popularity of meditation and mindfulness, right? Everything's mindfulness this, mindfulness that. But often there is an idea about what I want to get out of meditation. And uh, from a Buddhist point of view, that's slightly problematic. And if we go back to what we were just talking about, it makes a little bit of sense, right? So basic goodness, our fu a fundamental sane being resides throughout this room. But we're not experiencing that, right? We're kind of aware at the level of the fifth skanda, right? Our, the, the, the AM radio in our heads, our self-narrative. That's mostly what we're aware of. We're not aware of the experience of basic goodness. And we're up there in our heads, and we're struggling. We're trying to figure out like, what's, what's helpful, what's not helpful. What should I be doing with myself? How should I relate with myself? What do I do with all these emotions? All right, we're doing our best. But the whole conceptual loop is actually part of the confusion. So when we come into meditation practice, with an idea of what we should get out of it. We're still kind of just servicing this confusion. Now, sometimes our reasons for meditating um, kind of fit with the understanding of basic goodness and then the cloud of confusion, of ego rising. But sometimes they don't fit. So when people think, well, I'm going to meditate to clear my mind of everything. Not sure that's going to work. Because as you notice, right, it's arising. So one of the qualities of ego is that it's a strong habit it's a mistake that just keeps getting reinforced over and over again, right? So we pay attention to our thoughts, the, the narrative. It kind of feeds them, right? That's where we place our attention most of the time. 
So to have an agenda of getting rid of thoughts might be problematic. It's problematic for another reason, which is that usually when we examine our motivation, when we're trying to get rid of thoughts, it's because we're actually trying to get rid of ourselves. We don't actually like ourselves. We're like, ugh, can I just like have a clean slate start over? But actually, this whole ego thing is quite workable when we understand it for what it is. And the speed of this process, right? I mean, talk about it as five heaps. But actually, how we experience it, we experience it as if we're on a speeding train. So those five things, they're like one solid big mass. Right? And that's why people said things like solid, pride, arrogant. Right? Those are very kind of solid things we perceive as solid. But actually, it's not. It's more like uh, film. Right? They're actually discrete images, so to speak. But when you run them all together really fast through light, ah, you got a, you got a, you got a picture that keeps going that's solid. So it's fine to have a reason for meditating. You kind of have to. But it's very helpful to contrast the reason that you have with what the Buddhist teachings actually say about why, from a Buddhist point of view, one benefits from meditation practice. Our logic that gets us to the meditation cushion is good, because it got us to the meditation cushion. But then, when we're on the cushion, what are we practicing doing? Practice? Who practices? I just space out. Right? What, what's the instruction? What do we do? Yes? To always come back to the breath. And to therefore be in the present moment. That sounds good. And where are we coming back from? Where do we go? Yes? You do it to become more familiar with yourself. To know who you are. What's going on in here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the motivation is like, she's like, well, I do have motivation. It's to learn about myself, right? Isn't that okay? Yes, definitely. Definitely. We're coming back from thoughts. Yes. Stories. Fear. Yeah, fear. That's when we really experience a solid, right? Very solid. And what do we experience when we do that practice? When we 
let go of the thought or label the thought thinking or the, the feeling of fear, you know, whatever is sort of stealing our attention away. And then we come back to the breath. What do we learn, what do we learn about ourselves when we do that? That it's like the sun and the clouds come and go. Wow, come and go. Not so solid. Not so solid. Yes. Learning, you can disrupt the narrative and nothing bad happened, right? Wow. Wow. Disrupt the narrative, nothing bad happens. In fact, what does happen when you disrupt the narrative? What's that like when you disrupt it? The whole, the, oh, no, 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 I like this, I don't like this, I can't believe he said that, I wish I could do that. Yes. It's a relief. Release. Yeah. And then there's usually a thought of like, really? I can do that? That's okay? So you guys are getting it, right? That one of the things we learn about ourselves when we practice meditation is that we can let go. We can let go of the narrative, of the thoughts, of the constant reference point that we create of our thinking minds. And that when we do, we actually experience them as not quite so solid. And in fact, we can also feel a sense of relief to be able to be in the present moment, sitting, breathing. And then what usually happens next? Hey, yeah, we're gone again. Poof, gone. Oh, well, that was half a second. Enlightenment. Actually, yes. Yeah. That is actually part of the process. We do tap in to the ground of basic goodness all the time. That's what makes meditation practice a good idea, is that we're interrupting what we're misperceiving as solid as true, as real, as me. We're actually interrupting that constant mistake. We're letting go of fixation on thought. So going back to my comment about it's slightly problematic to have an idea about why we meditate and that slightly problematic part is that that's part of concept. That's part of the story. That's actually part of the problem, the mistake. What we're examining from a Buddhist point of view is awareness, mindfulness awareness, 
of the present moment without the cloud coverage of concept, of thought. Who am I without my story? Who am I without being constantly distracted by the arising of ego, right? Ego is this mistake, not a big monster. It just has a lot of momentum, right? It's like really very, it's a speeding train, right? We come back to the breath, half a second later, poof, before we know it, we're just totally lost in our narrative, lost in our story, including the story of like, Am I meditating properly? I'm not sure I'm doing this right. right? And then it's like, oh, but I'm not supposed to be talking to myself. Jeez, how do you do this? So at first, when we practice, we struggle with how do you have an immediate direct experience? What is the experience of the breath, of myself? I mean, we do exist, right? I can see you, you can see me. We do exist. We just don't exist in the way we think we do. We're taking all these separate five experiences, glomming them together, and assuming that means there's a solid me and that narrative in my head must be true. I need to defend myself and protect and strategize and these feelings I have are true and real. No, it's actually a mistake. So when we practice meditation, we're practicing letting go of the mistake and finding out if I let go of constantly having a conceptual reference point, who am I? If I go in and out with the breath, if I am the breath, is that really okay? Is that enough? And then doubt arises, right? And then we go back into a story because we don't have confidence at this point in Buddha nature, in basic goodness. So one of the things we watch as we practice is we watch doubt arising over and over and over again. And then we believe that, right? And then we, the narrative gets churning so meditation practice, practice, underline that word, practice, constantly coming back, is the, the place where we start to experience, it's like our lab, a personal lab we're in, where we start to play with what, what is my experience if it's not the story I create, if it's not the concepts in my head. And it's very helpful if you keep in mind the idea of fundamental sanity. 
because doubt is going to arise. It's, it's part of our strong habitual conditioning. We're constantly doubting. That's what kind of fuels our self-aggression. So it's helpful if we can hold in our minds, even if we don't believe it, even if we're we like, I don't even know if I've had an experience of basic goodness, I'm not really sure, but that we could just hold that as a possibility. And then when we sit to practice, to tell ourselves, okay, it's going to be my 10 minutes of meditating. And give up the judgment about it. Because that's just that juicy fifth skanda, consciousness arising. It's not true, solid, definitely should not be our reference point for our meditation practice. Our reference point for our meditation practice really should be the breath. So that we just practice. Good, bad, I'm, it's not me to judge. Does that sound like a good time? Yeah. So well, we could have some discussion at this point if you have questions or comments. Yeah, you're, you're very articulate. And I was wondering if you could, uh, uh, you're a very good teacher, very articulate. Well, uh, could you uh, say something about the six realms? About the six realms? After consciousness. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, sure, let's start. <laughs> so the reason why the, the question is coming up about the six realms is because the, the fifth skanda, which is our, our narrative, the storyline that we create, has the quality of six different psychological states. And those are called the six realms. Um, and I, I'll mention them briefly, but really it'd be great if, if someone, someone really should give a whole talk on them as a, like the next, next topic. Um, but the, the emotional, I'll say something about the emotional quality of each of the six realms. The, the, the lowest realm is the hell realm. And that's an, a, a, a habitual style of experiencing a tremendous amount of pain and anger, rage. So much so that it's very hard to focus on anything else. And I should say that these six psychological styles, we all kind of cycle through them. But you know, we each kind of have one or two that we hang out in more than the others. So. And we've all experienced that moment of rage where, like, that's all you experience. So uh, the quality of having a hell realm experience is that there's really not a lot of space. You don't get a lot of choice because it's so intense, the suffering. The next up is the hungry ghost, no, yeah, hungry ghost realm. And the hungry ghost realm is characterized by an, an intense feeling of impoverishment psychological impoverishment um, and a, a, a longing to be fulfilled, to be satisfied. And the, the images of a being with an incredible belly and like a, like a pencil uh, 
diameter neck and a huge mouth. And so you can see how the setup is such that one never feels satisfied, always kind of hungry for more and in tremendous pain and fear because they never feel like they're satisfied. And when we don't feel satisfied, we feel like our survival is threatened. So both of those kind of lower psychological states, we feel very threatened. The next up is the animal realm. And the animal realm is very driven by basic impulses, um, the most basic being ignorance. So when we're psychologically in the animal realm, we're all about survival. Like, where am I going to get my food? Where am I going to get my shelter? Where am I going to get my sex? Like, that's really what we focus on when we're in that kind of mind frame. Very much tunnel vision. Uh, the next realm up is much greater uh, psychological options, which is the human realm. And the human realm is characterized by the emotion of desire, of, of wanting, uh, curiosity, intelligence. So from a practice point of view, the human realm is the easiest psychological state to be in in order to practice. Because in the lower three realms, our minds are Oh, it, this, the suffering is a little too intense. The psychological, um, emotional experience is such that we don't feel like we have a lot of space and we don't feel like we have much choice. Whereas when your mind is more in the human realm, there's much more of a sense of being able to examine and explore the world, to have a relationship with the world, with give and take. The jealous God realm, uh, these are people who are very much about being competitive and they have a, both a tremendous sense of power but also a tremendous sense of competitiveness and jealousy. You find a lot of the, the jealous God realm uh, people on Wall Street. They're very smart, very driven, but they know they haven't quite made it to the God realm, which is the sixth of the psychological states, which is the feeling of having arrived. Ah, just content, no problem. And of course you'd ask, well, why isn't the God realm the best place to practice? Well, the reason is because when your mind is in the God realm, you feel so content, there really isn't any motivation to practice. So from a Buddhist point of view, it's actually helpful to have a little bit of uncertainty, a little bit of suffering, a little bit of like, mm, what's, I don't quite like this, what's going on? Because then that gets us on the path. So those are the, the six realms, and they're the main psychological uh, qualities of the fifth skanda, which is uh, the manifestation of our minds. In life, what would the reference point be? Okay, that's a great question. Well, why do we make the reference point when we're meditating the breath? What is, why choose that object? 
because it's always there, right? It's happening, it's in the present, and it's here. So, okay, well, there's nothing sacred about the breath, right? So what we are appreciating is that, okay, well, it's an, it's an anchor in the present moment. It's something we experience through the sense perceptions that's arising all the time. Okay, so when we're going throughout the day, we could use other reference points through the sense perceptions. But that's the key part, is that in our experience of our sense perceptions, there is the, there is the immediate arising of the experience that is pre-concept. Right, like if you all just take a nice deep breath, there's, just a, there's a, a feeling quality to that, right? It's just, we notice it. We, we don't have to give a big narrative to that. So when we're out in our lives, we can use our sense perceptions, whether it's sound, taste, touch, as our reference point with the instruction that we give ourselves to be the actual experience of it, not our narrative about it. And that's what's tricky, right? We're like, I don't know what to do with that. So it's not, oh, I really like that music. That's at the fifth skanda. We actually want to give ourselves the instruction to rest in sound, right? So just for a second, just rest your attention on the sound of the air conditioner. That's it. Before, we like it, we don't like it, anything else. It's just that. And it, it just happens for like, and then our narrative arises, and then we'll give ourselves that instruction again. Okay, well, I'm just walking down the street. Maybe I could just feel my body moving through the space. I don't need to do anything else. I could just be in the present moment experiencing the sun on my face, the movement of my body, right? The Buddhist teachings are actually saying that's really enough, right? That's enough, actually, to experience your basic goodness, is to rest in the present moment, your sensory experience in the present moment. Really? Yes. Um, so I want to go back to the creation story. Yeah, great. Um, so as I remember it, uh, there's this experience of, of basic goodness. Mm -hmm. um, and it's blissful and beautiful, but so intense that ultimately we end up piling on all this other stuff to sort of create mm -hmm. some room. Why, why is it too much for us? Why can we not? I mean, I'm, I'm assuming this is at sort of this primordial state before the skandhas have even gotten mm -hmm. involved. Yes, so why, that's right. So why should that be too intense for us? Right. Um, well, that's really, that's really what we want to challenge. Is it really too intense? Like, if you think about your own experience of... Actually, I'll give you one that... Um, so I have this condition called vagal vagus. Anybody else have it? It's really fun. It's when you pass out when you experience blood. It's fun. Anyway, there's a really interesting thing that happens when you pass out, which is that in the first moment when you wake up, you don't know who you are or where you are. 
you just have this experience of the forms. And it's really interesting to watch your mind in that moment because that doesn't feel like enough. It's like I can feel in my being, I'm like grasping to figure out what this is. What is, what is it I'm seeing? What is, who am I? And it's maybe like two seconds, it's really short. But boy, it's not comfortable. And the question is like, why isn't that comfortable? Why can't I just hang out not knowing who I am or where I am or what I'm seeing? When you find out the answer, you'll let me know. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a, good, it's a really important question to rest your attention on. Like, why couldn't I, why couldn't I handle that? So, but, and you can use other experiences as the precursor. So we each have lots of different emotions that, that we've decided we can't handle. When, ex, when shame comes up, no, can't be with that. I've got to immediately do something. Or a feeling of... Uh, helplessness, that's a really good one. Watch yourself when a feeling of helplessness arises. I don't want to stay with that. We immediately go into action. So that's a good practice ground. Whatever emotion you think you can't handle, try to sit with it just for a second. Just like, could I just, it's a sensation, right? At the basics level of the first skanda, first I just notice it as a form. And then I immediately have a preference whether I like this emotion or not. And then I strategize and I give it a label and then I have a whole story about it. But could I practice just being with the immediate felt experience of that emotion? Just for like a nanosecond. And then I can like create the whole story again. But could I practice just coming back to the form level or the pre-form letter of just noticing the experience? And that will help direct you towards the bigger question of like, why can't I just hang out with basic goodness? So um, thank you all for coming. And we're going to have a little reception afterwards if you want to stay and chat some more.